Good evening. We're glad you're here. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your mercies. And we thank you that we can open the book of Revelation and study it together. We want to especially pray for Pastor Herthel and for those who are with him as they have gone on this mission trip to Cuba. Keep them safe and bring them back safely. May they be successful in their mission there. Now bless us as we study this, your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. For the sake of the recording, I want you to know I'm getting over a bad cold that settled in my throat, but I am improving. I'm not about ready to kick the bucket yet. Okay? As we pick up with chapter 18, we first want to review very quickly chapter 17 of Revelation. In verses 1 through 6, it talked about the great harlot, which was the apostate church. And in 17, we find that the first six verses describe this great harlot, how she appeared and what she was like. Then in verses 7 through 18, it speaks about the destruction of this power. And we talked quite a bit about it last time, so I won't get into it now. Apostate religion will abound, but it will fall at the second coming of Christ. This is the synopsis of that chapter. Now as we move into 18, I want to begin with this quotation that comes from These Times Magazine. Beginning with a solemn statement, God hath remembered her iniquities. John describes the tragic fate of Babylon, the great path of compromise and sin that at first seemed so wide and inviting to her has led to her destruction. We mentioned before that a beast represents more of a civil uh, power, whereas uh, a woman represents that of an ecclesiastical power. And so we find here that Babylon is more than this. Matter of fact, it's more than just the harlot. Don't forget, she also had daughters, it says. And so Babylon is bigger than that. It takes in apostate religion. It takes in unbelief and a number of other things, which we'll talk about later. We want to begin with verses 1 through 8. Here it talks about Babylon the Great and how she is destroyed. Look at verse 1. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Let's look at this for a moment. Notice that there are two falls of Babylon. Historically, ancient Babylon fell a long time ago and is no longer there. It's gone. Just as was predicted, it would never be inhabited again, and it has not. What Babylon is this talking about? This is talking about spiritual Babylon at the end of time. So the literal Babylon has fallen now it's talking about 
spiritual Babylon falling. So this is the reason why it repeats itself. Now, I mentioned to you in the past that when you see something repeated, it's a sign of emphasis. It means pay attention. This is important. And notice it has become the habitation of devils. It has become the habitation of demons. And these are demons that are going out professing to have a way to salvation. But in reality, the way that they are presenting are not uh, in harmony with Scripture. And behold, every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, what is that referring to? We find that when it talks about every foul spirit, that's every bad-smelling spirit. We find that there are things creeping into Christianity that do not belong there. One is reincarnation. That is not biblical. It comes from the Eastern religions, but we find this being brought into Christianity. How many times do you hear people talk about their karma and um, you know various things of this nature? These are Eastern terms that has come out of Eastern mysticism and, and uh, religions that have crept in. And we find that the Babylon at the end of time will attempt to unite these various things together. And we find even today, where it says unclean things, we find that in Scripture, even such things as homosexuality is now acceptable as a way of life. According to the Scriptures, that is not true, not only in the Old Testament, but look at the first chapter of Romans, and it makes it very clear. And these things are coming in. Immortality of the soul is bringing in everything from ghosts to getting in touch with spirits. And these things are unclean as far as the Scripture is concerned. Look at verse 3. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Why is this? Because the harlot in chapter 17, she has been flirting with all these other different religions. And the wine or the doctrines or teachings are coming in from false gods, false religions. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchandise of the earth are waxed rich with the abundance of her delicacies. We find that financially, I mentioned to you before I'm reading a book called God's Bankers, very enlightening book about the financial dealings of the papacy and with the different nations and so forth and how it's been backing different uh, movements that are going on. And we find that the selling of religious symbols, we find the selling of forgiveness, such as indulgences, and things of this nature. It's all mixed in with this. Look further. It says that I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye may not be partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not her plagues. 
Why does God want a world mission outreach? It's because God has people all over the world. Do you realize that there are only two world churches? Are you aware of that? There are only two world churches. One is the Roman Catholic Church, and the other is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Most people aren't aware of that. Other denominations, they have national churches. They have uh, regional churches. But only the Roman Catholic Church, when they want to make a major decision, the Pope will call together a conclave. He will call together a Vatican Council and representatives from all over the earth, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, from all over the earth will come together and then they will make decisions and take it back to the churches. Did you ever hear of Seventh-day Adventist General Conference? Where they invite uh, from different uh, divisions of the world work to send representatives together wherever they're meeting and they make decisions worldwide, vote on something, and then take it back. Those are the only two churches that operate on that kind of a scale. And isn't it interesting that one bases its religion on the word of God and the authority of scripture, whereas the other bases it on tradition and the authority of councils and and men and popes, you see. And it's very interesting that there are only two women that are mentioned here. And so as we look at this, we find that God is saying, come out of my people. He's saying, those of you who are in Babylon, in religious confusion, I'm not trying to pick on just the Catholic Church. I'm trying to point out that this is broader than that. Babylon is all religious denominations. It's all religious beliefs. God is telling us to call people out. How are we calling them out? By presenting to them the three angels' messages of Revelation. It's to let them know that they are living in the time of the end. And God says, come out of her. Why? Because there are plagues going to be poured out upon Babylon and false religion. And we need to come back to the roots, which is Jesus Christ and keeping his word, his commandments. The sign of God's people in the last days is not that they can speak in tongues, is not that they can perform miracles, but it says, here are they that what? Keep the commandments of God, all ten, which includes the Sabbath, and have faith in Jesus. And we're going to find another definition of that in, a, in just a few minutes. So we find Revelation 18.4 is following up on what we talked about in Revelation 14. Look at 18.5 now. And her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Oftentimes we think God's forgotten the past. To us, 
we think differently than the Bible does. I don't know if I mentioned it in this seminar or past seminars, but the Hebrew people thought of time differently than the way we do. Did I mention that to you before? To us, to the Gentile mind, the important thing is today, now, the present. Uh, Forget about history, that's all gone. Who cares about the Crusades? They're gone a long time ago. And don't worry about tomorrow. We've got enough things to worry about today. So there's a disconnect between the present, the past, and the future. That's not the way the Hebrews thought. Did you ever notice when you read Acts, when Stephen, before he's stoned, he takes them back and he starts talking about how they came out of Egypt. And then he works his way up to Christ. And then he starts projecting it into the future. This is the way the Bible operates. Because what I am doing now, the present is only a point in time. It's a snap of the fingers. And as a matter of fact, I have my pen here. See? My pen is up in the air. That's in the present, isn't it? Where is it now? That's in the past. It's no longer in my hand. It was in my hand. Now it's in the past. And so we find that what happened in the past shows us how God has led us and how we have gotten to the present. And that makes us think, wow, if God has led us this way in the past, what manner of men and women ought we to be knowing what's before us? You see. Knowing that he's the one that created us and he's going to be the one to judge us. Therefore, I need to be recreated in the present. And so this idea that they look back and they look ahead, but the present, that doesn't mean much. Especially to the younger generation. Everything's the present. You know, they don't care about the future. I'll worry about that later. But Notice what it says here. God remembered her iniquities. God is keeping track of these things. He remembers the crusades. He remembers the, the um, um, persecutions that have taken place in the past. He knows what's going on now. And God is keeping a record. And don't forget, Babylon has not finished persecuting God's people yet. There's more persecution to come. And God keeps record of this. But in this verse, it says he brings it to his mind. And God remembers all these things. He keeps a record of our deeds and our thoughts. Look at verse 6. It says, reward her even as she rewarded you. And double unto her. Double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. What does that mean? Did you ever stop to think when you pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know what you're really saying? You're saying, forgive me the same way I forgive others. Are you a person who is very grudging about forgiving others? You're saying, Lord, 
I don't forgive people very easily. I get even with them. But I want you to treat me the same way. But double. You see what you're doing? You're condemning yourself when you do that. And notice, he said that he was to reward them even the way they treated others. And those who persecuted God's people in the past and caused their blood to flow, we find that their own blood flows when these plagues are poured out. Look at verse 7. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her, for she said in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. She thought, I'm in charge. I'm a queen. Nobody can hurt me. And in her arrogance, the Lord has to take her down a few pegs. Notice in verse 8, it says, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. Now, here again, there are some who say that's a literal day. But to be consistent, if a day is a year, I'm assuming this to be a year. Now, I may have to wait till I get there to find out if it's a day or a year, you know. But there's reason to believe that this means within a year's time because there's so many things that are taking place that it may take some while to do it. It says, notice, death and mourning and famine. It's not much of a famine if it only lasts one day. It usually takes a longer period of time for a famine, doesn't it? What is the famine? It's not only a famine of food, but it's a famine for God's word, for God's truth. Even if she wanted God's truth, it's not available now because the Holy Spirit has been withdrawn from the wicked. And notice, there would be a famine. And why is she mourning? She's mourning because she knows she's lost, you see. And she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. Now, who is the Lord God who judges her? God has given judgment into the hands of Christ, right? And so, we find here, at the coming of the Lord, it's going to be very bright. And you get too close to a bright light, especially the sun, you're going to find the glory of it will be burning. Now, those were the first seven verses of chapter 18. When we get into verse 8 through 19, notice here, It's talking about the world mourning over Babylon. Look at verse 9. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament her when she shall see the smoke of her burning. The smoke of her burning. We have reason to believe that the city itself, the city of Rome, may burn. But I think there's more to it than this. Notice, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, the great city Babylon. Now remember, a city represents a government, like God speaks of his throne in heaven as Mount Zion. You see, the city of God. 
And here we find this is the city of Babylon or the, the false religion. That mighty city for in one hour is thy judgment come. The judgment happens. It begins to fall. So we find in verse 11, it says, And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth her merchandise anymore. They don't buy her goods. In plain words, Babylon loses its influence greatly. And verse 12 says, And the merchandise of gold and silver, of precious stones, of pearl, fine linen, of purple and silk, scarlet, of fine wood, and all manner uh, vessels of ivory, and all manner vessels of, of most precious wood, and of brass, and of iron, and of marble. What did they do with these things? They made great temples. They made statues. They made all kinds of beautiful robes and so forth. And many, many merchants made a lot of money helping to promote this religion. And now when it falls and loses its influence and power, these merchants find themselves high and dry. And the cinnamon and the odors and the ointments and the frankincense, all these things that are involved in the worship services and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. You see, all these things that are wrapped up with the false religion, now, as Babylon falls, they realize, hey, what good are these things? And it loses its power. Look at 14. And the fruits that thy soul lusteth after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. These things are useless. And people realize that we are lost and these things aren't going to save us. And she loses her power. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, that shall stand afar off for fear of her torment and the weeping and the wailing. And saying, alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Now don't forget that we are to be clothed in white linen, are we not? The linen represents the righteousness of Christ. He takes our filthy garments away and gives us a pure robe, which is his character. It's his righteousness. But this one, notice, she's not in pure white linen. She's in all different colored linen. And it's also interesting that purple and scarlet are the colors used by the hierarchy in Rome. And not only there, but in other uh, religions as well, and precious stones, etc. Look at verse 17. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company in ships 
the sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off, and they cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? Anybody ever been to Rome? We have. We went through um, St. Peter's Cathedral. We went to St. Paul's Cathedral, too. I like St. Paul's better than I do St. Peter's. But when we went through the Vatican Museum, saw the secret archives, uh, I saw where the doors are shut tight, and I peeked between the cracks to see how far back it goes. Do you know it's something like 38 miles of uh, stacks that go back there? There's stuff back there that the church doesn't even know. If they don't even know what's back there. It's so old. But anyway, you could see, and I'll be honest with you, some of the stuff there was beautiful. And I thought, oh, if this place ever burns, all these beautiful things will be burned up. But you know what? They are going to be burned up. Someday, they're going to be gone. Besides, all this beautiful art and everything, as much as I appreciated it, from an aesthetic point of view, what does it have to do with truth? What does it have to do with winning souls for the kingdom of God. If we have to make a decision in spending a lot of money to preserve great works of art or to reach the world and save souls, what should our priority be? But that's not the case with the merchants and the kings of the earth. Notice also, when we're talking about Babylon, we're talking about the merger of church and state. That's what builds Babylon. That's what built ancient Babylon. It was a false religion that also was in charge of the government, you see. And it succeeded to a certain point, and then the Lord stopped it. And we find here with this Babylon, it looks like it's going to succeed in blending one world religion, one world government, under the auspices of the harlot. And all of a sudden, the destruction comes, and the Lord pulls the rug out from under it at the last time. And it, it says within an hour, it all collapses. Okay. And they cast dust on their heads. Now that was a sign of um, mourning. Job did that when he was suffering. He dressed in sackcloth and put ashes on his head. This was very common. What it means is, I'm dead. That's basically what it means. Uh, I'm, I'm less than dirt when you put it on there. It's a sign of extreme humility. And it says they cast dust on their heads and they cried and weeping and wailing saying, alas, alas, the great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness for in one hour she has made desolate. She loses it all. How exactly that's going to happen? We need to wait to find out. We need to be careful that we interpret the prophecies, but we don't try to become prophets. 
and make it say what it's not saying. We can only relate what Scripture has told us and what history has told us. Now, as Babylon collapses and destroyed, the, the kings of the earth are weeping and wailing. The merchants are weeping and wailing. What's the attitude in heaven? Hip, hip, hooray! In heaven, they're glad. Notice, heaven rejoices at Babylon's destruction. Verse 20. Rejoice over her. Our, our eyes are now lifted from the earth to the heavenly. In this battle of two, two different uh, religious authorities, rejoice over her, thou heaven, and thy holy prophets and apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. In plain words, God's gotten even. Remember, the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And if you want to shed innocent blood, good. I will shed your blood. Matter of fact, I'll give you a double dose. You see. Now, some people can't reconcile that with the loving God. As a matter of fact, the destruction of the wicked, to burn them in fire, how could a God of love do that? You know what? That's the quickest way to get rid of them. I think it's even worse to just torture them forever and ever and ever and ever and never let them die. Just have them in agony forever. That would be cruel and unusual punishment. The Lord wants to get rid of the whole sin problem as quickly as possible. But the God of love, the God of life, to destroy the wicked, the Bible calls that God's strange act. Why? Because it's contrary to his heart of love. But he has to do it in order to save those that are worth saving. You've heard me say before, if, I, if my arm had gangrene in it and it was making its way up toward my heart, as much as I love my right arm, I would beg the doctor to cut that thing off. And that's what the saints under the altar are saying. How long? He says, take it easy. There's more that have to die. But vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's actually an act of love on God's part. To save the body, he has to cut the arm off. And so we find here that the apostles and prophets and all, they're saying, praise the Lord for Finally, this thing is coming to an end. Look at 21. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and he cast it into the sea. He didn't just go plunk. He takes it and he throws it down into the sea. Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and she be found no more at all. Now, when it says into the sea, don't forget, waters can represent people, too, in prophecy. In plain words, God is going to allow something to bring about this destruction and downfall of Babylon. And it will be violent. And nobody's going to help her. So, 
Those who think that the Roman church has died, not so. The Roman church will continue until just before the second coming of Christ. It received a, a wound back in 1798, but it began to heal from that, and then all the world chases after it until finally the Lord himself brings an end to it. Look at verse 22. And the voices of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. What's a millstone for? It's for grinding grain, right? And so we find here, no more will they be grinding the the uh, the food or the people, for that matter, because they're, they're grain too. Look at 23, it says, and the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall no more, uh, shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth. For by their sorceries were all nations deceived. Now notice, by their sorceries, what is a sorcerer? By the way, a witch is a woman. What do you call a male witch? A warlock or a wizard. But a sorcerer is one who not only casts spells, but a sorcerer is one who communicates with spirits, you see. And what's happening here? The spirits of demons have come in and they have led people astray. And it says they would be no more heard in the earth. Let's look at the next one, 24. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. The Babylon receives her punishment for, for slaying God's people, for persecuting God's people, for teaching them false doctrines and teaching not only lead to their physical death, but also leads to their spiritual death, you see. And so we come to the end of chapter 18. Chapter 18 is really a continuation of chapter 17. Remember in 17, it starts talking about the harlot and all, and then it bleeds over into chapter 14 because now she's coming to an end, her destruction, and heaven is rejoicing for it. So in summarizing this chapter, notice verses 1 through 8, tell of that great Babylon that it will be destroyed and is fallen. It's, uh, it causes her plagues to come upon her in one day. And then verses 9 through 19, it explains how the merchants who once dealt with her mourn her passing but they can't do anything to help her. And then verses 20 through 24, it speaks of heaven's attitude or their response to the news of Babylon's destruction, and that was with great joy. 
I hope you don't mind if I skip over your quiz. Do you feel too bad about that? I mean, if I'll make it up to you, if you want me to. Let's move now into uh, chapter 19. And in, I'm not going to review chapter 18 because the same thing I just said, okay? In chapter 19, we begin with an introduction. And this introduction will run for the first six verses. Now, chapter 19 is interesting because now Babylon is destroyed and our attention is being focused on something different. Look in 19.1, it says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. So our eyes are now not on the earth, but on the, on the heavens, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Now you notice how 17, 18, and 19 go together? Because this is talking about the great whore, and 17 talks about the great harlot. And in between, it talks about her committing fornication with the kings of the earth, looking for civil power as well as ecclesiastical power. Um, during the 1800s, there was a big problem with the papal states. And finally, Italy took the states away from uh, the Vatican, and they no longer had civil government. And the Pope considered himself a prisoner within the Vatican until finally 1929, when Mussolini restores all this. He didn't restore the papal states, but he gave him back an 18-hole golf course that we call Vatican City. Look at uh, verse 2. It says, For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Verse 3. And again they said, Alleluia! And her smoke riseth up forever and ever. Now, that's interesting. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. It also talks about Sodom and Gomorrah when they were destroyed, that its smoke went up forever and ever. Well, I've been to Israel. I've been to where Sodom and Gomorrah is supposed to be. There are several different places that claim that location. One of them is in the, the Dead Sea. Well, I didn't see any smoke coming out of the Dead Sea. And even when we went on the shoreline, we didn't any, see any smoke going up. What does that simply mean? It, it means that the result of that burning is forever. It's gone. I mean, if your house burns down, that house is forever gone. You may build another house that's a duplicate of the first. It's not the same house, you see. That house is forever gone. It's gone off into, even if you have, if you were to put all the ashes and glue them back together again, you still wouldn't have the same house because some of it went off as heat. 
Some of it went off as light. How are you going to pull all these things back again? And so when it talks about the smoke going up forever and ever, it means for an undetermined period of time. The word forever means really as long as life shall last. Well, this isn't going to live anymore. So its destruction is forever. Okay, look at verse 4. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Amen, Alleluia. What's amen mean? It means what? Yes, so be it. Praise the Lord. So be it that this would come true. Okay? And notice, we talked about the 24 elders before and the four beasts. Each of those beasts had different faces that were facing forward. They each represented a different aspect of Christ's character, didn't they? And so we find here that they're saying, praise the Lord, I'm in harmony with with what's happened in the decision. Look at verse 5. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great, whether you're a slave, whether you're a pauper, or whether you're a wealthy person. Praise God for what what has happened. And look at verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. My friends, God is still in control. It may look like the devil's in charge, but just when the devil thinks he's winning, boop, it's gone. I think we found out in the last election that one of our candidates thought she was winning. And whoop, what happened? She lost, you see. Things were turned over overnight. And so we find here that whenever it looks like the devil is gaining in anything, the Lord pulls the rug out from under it. And there's nothing worse than when the devil gets caught in his own trap. You know, look at, from here now, we start talking about the marriage of the Lamb. Now, you're going to see two meals being prepared here. Two feasts that are prepared. They're actually opposite of one another. One is the feast of the lamb. The other will be the feast of the birds. You see. And here, the feast of the lamb or the marriage of the lamb. And in verse 7 it says... Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. Now, (coughs) this refers back to the parable of the ten virgins. And here in America, we don't understand the oriental wedding as it was in the Middle East. You see, a betrothal is a lot more serious than an engagement. We think people get engaged, then they get married. Well, a betrothal in those days 
was almost like getting married, although they didn't they weren't allowed to have physical relationships, but they were still, as a matter of fact, to break that engagement was considered to be a divorce. You see. And they had to go through a a, a big process to do that. And they had to make sure that they had proper grounds for it. Here we find that when it's referring to the marriage of the Lamb, the Lamb, of course, being Christ, stop and think about it. You see, the wedding, it was the responsibility of, let's say a king was going to have his son get married. The king would be the one that would sponsor the the wedding. He would actually provide robes for them to wear. He would provide what you wear to the wedding. I remember when Linda and I got married, we had to pay for the dresses and the tuxedos that the guys and the girls wore. You see, I don't know if they do that anymore. I think they all get their own thing. But anyway, we had to pay for it. Well, here we find the king had to pay for it. He, he would send you a robe to wear. And if you didn't wear that robe to the wedding, you were tossed out, you see. And this, Jesus refers to this uh, in some of the stories he tells. But also, what would happen is that when they were about to to get married. It was the responsibility of the groom to prepare the honeymoon cottage, to prepare where they're going to live. It was the responsibility of the bride to get herself all prettied up. Okay? Now stop and think. Jesus said when he left the earth, in my father's house are many mansions. And then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Why? Because you're my bride. I go to prepare your honeymoon cottage. You see the symbolism here? All right. And then, in the meantime, she's supposed to be getting herself all prettied up. What is she doing? She's supposed to be perfecting her character. Isn't that what the purpose of the church is today? That we are to put off the sin in our lives and we are to put on the righteousness of Christ and be ready. You know, in that holy city, we are the jewels in the holy city. By the way, God's not against jewelry. God's not against jewelry. I mean, he's going to give you a gold crown. Uh, he's, he's going to, he's going to have streets of gold and precious stones on the throne and everything. The thing is, God, you, you may even have different stones in your crown. So he's not against jewelry. The problem is, he's the one that puts it on you. When you put it on yourself, That's where the problem is. Because those different gemstones represent overcoming different character traits. And if I say, oh, I look good in diamonds, 
You may say, hey, look, you, you have coal instead, you know? That represents your character. We don't wear these things. We wait and let him put them on us. And notice that uh, in preparation, they are to get ready. Then what's supposed to happen? We find that the groom then, when he's getting ready for the wedding, the wedding takes place in his father's house. What happens is the groom comes and gets his bride, gets his bride and takes her back to the father's house for the ceremony. This is the reason why Jesus comes with his entourage and he gathers up his bride, whether they're alive when he comes or out of the grave. He gathers them together. Why? To bring them back to the father's house for the wedding feast. You see, and that wedding feast is going to be in the holy city. Technically, according to the scriptures, what is the bride of Christ? Well, John saw it later. He saw the holy city descending from God out of heaven when he came down to the earth, and he said that the holy city was the bride of Christ coming down. Now, what's the difference between a house and a home? What's the difference between a house and a home? A house is just a building. A home is when people are in it, right? And the bride of Christ is both the people, but it's also the holy city because it's inhabited with the precious stones that he brings back with him. And so you can see where in the parable of the ten virgins, the connection that's being brought out here. And we find that the witnesses to the, uh, the wedding, they go with him also. But if they're not ready, when the bridegroom comes, they can run around trying to get ready, but the door is shut and they can't get in. That's why there's no second chance. We've got to be ready for the second coming of Christ. You see? But you see some of the parallels that are being drawn here. But anyway, notice here, it says that give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. This is what we are to be doing now. We are to be getting ready for the coming of the Lord. He is the groom. We are the bride. I've been a groom before. I've never been a bride. But this time, I'm going to be a bride. Okay? Some people would prefer that I wear a veil. (laughs) But we'll see. Anyway, look at verse 8. It says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. What's that? That's the character of Christ. That's the robe that he's provided for us. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. What is the righteousness of the saints? We don't have any righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness that has been put on the saints, you see. They have accepted it. Look at verse 9. It says, And he said unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Now remember when in one of the stories in the scriptures where the king, he called people to come to the wedding feast and they wouldn't come. 
So he says, forget you. And he went and got somebody else to come in. There are those who don't answer the call, and God says, okay, you're busy. I'll call someone else. We need to be careful we don't have somebody else take our place in that wedding feast. Don't let anybody steal your crown. You be faithful. Look at verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, now he, this is an angel who's talking to him now. And when John saw all this, he falls down and he starts to worship the angel. Kneeling down or jettiflexing to a, a human being or to a statue, that's actually worship. And notice, he said that he fell down and uh, I fell at his feet to worship him. And notice what the angel said. He said unto me, see that uh, thou do it not. In place, cut it out. You don't worship me. Why? I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren. So he's saying, I am a created being just like you are. We are not to fall down to other created beings and worship them. We are not to kiss anybody's ring or kiss their feet. That is giving a created being worship that they do not deserve. And notice it says that I have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Now notice, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now notice that spirit of prophecy Testimony of Jesus are synonymous here. Now, what does this mean, the spirit of prophecy? It means not only do I have the spirit to interpret prophecy, but God has given me the prophecies to give to others. Now, the spirit of prophecy, this is where we get the term spirit of prophecy that we commonly use But notice it's connected with the testimony of Jesus. Anything or anybody who claims to have the gift of prophecy, if they speak contrary to what God has revealed about himself or about Jesus, or is contradictory to the commandments of God, which is a transcript of his character, don't pay attention to them. That's why he says, test the prophets. To The law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. Isaiah 840, I believe it is. So this is what he's saying. Now, now he starts talking about the second coming of Christ. 11 through 21 speaks of this. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. All right, the scripture tells us that Jesus is called the faithful and true witness, isn't he? And notice he's riding a white horse. Now why? I don't know. It says Jesus comes in the cloud. If he wants to ride a horse, fine, that's good for me too. But it's probably an angel horse because angels can change their, their form. Sometimes they appeared like with Elijah as as chariot, you know, horse and chariot. But why a white horse? Because when a king 
conquered his enemy and took over his capital city. When the king was defeated, the general or the conqueror would come in riding a white horse as a symbol of the conqueror. You know, in the old cowboy movies, the bad guys wore the black hats and the good guys wore the white hat. All right, he comes wearing a white hat, riding on a white horse. Okay? And notice he comes to judge and to make war. He judges those who are already and those who are not. And he dishes out the reward accordingly. Look at verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Now notice his eyes are flame of fire. The, the scripture pictures Jesus when he comes back with piercing eyes like fire. That, you know, to the righteous, there's no problem. But to the wicked, they can't look at him. And it's interesting that Ellen White mentioned that when Jesus was uh, um, chasing the, you know, the sinners out of the temple, when he was overturning the table, it said, for a moment, when they looked at him, divinity flashed from his eyes. I don't know if it was a flame of fire or what, but as they looked at him, they could see an authority about him that made him turn tail and run, you see. And so we find that this flame of fire, and on his head, many crowns. Why? He is the king of all kings. And his name written that no man knew. Now, it's interesting that there are several names for Jesus uh, that we don't even think about today. I might have mentioned one to you before. But Jesus, before he was born in Bethlehem, according to the Jews, and the only place you'll find this referred to is in Psalm 72, I believe. And there it talks about him being older than the sun. And you won't find it in English. We'll only find it in the original language. And it says his name is Yinan. Yinan. Y-I-N-N-O-N. I asked Dr. Uh, Richard Davidson down at Andrews University, who's a well-known Old Testament scholar, I said, what does Yinan really mean? And he said, actually, I don't know. I'll have to go look it up. So he did a little research on it. And a little while later when I saw him, I said, did you ever find out what Yinan means? He said, I did a lot of research on it. And he says, the closest thing I can come up with is it means the shoot or the branch. He is the shoot that restores life to a fallen tree. You know, you cut down a tree, before you know it, there's a little head that pops up. That is the future for the dead tree, you see. And he is the one who restores that which is destroyed. So there are some of these things that 
you don't generally find in the scriptures. Now here it says he had a name that no man knew except himself. Okay, is he going to reveal it or isn't he? Look at it, verse 13. And he said, and he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood. And his name is written. Now what? It's called what? The word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What is in the mind of God, Christ spoke into existence, you see. And here we find he's called the word of God, and this book is called the word of God. So that's one of his names, according to this. His name is the word of God in this particular text. And it says, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. These may be angels, true, but it may also be some of those people who ascended with Jesus. Maybe it's the 24 elders that are coming with him also, whose only righteousness is in Christ. They went to heaven on a MasterCard, right? You know, you get the reward now and you pay the bill later. In this case, we get the reward and Christ had to pay the bill. You see, well, in this case, they would have been after Christ's death. So anyway, look at verse 15. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Now the sword is the word of God. And that with it, he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he shall tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God, Almighty God. That's El Shaddai. El Shaddai is Almighty God. And so we find here that he is the ruler. He's the one that can put down the wicked. He's the one that can exalt the righteous. And notice in verse 16, it says on his vesture, that means his clothing, it says on his thigh is written a name. Now, is this the name that nobody knew before? Well, I don't know, because he's telling us now what it is. Maybe it's something else. But anyway, on his thigh is written, King of Kings, that's why he has so many crowns, and Lord of Lords. He is above and beyond them all. Verse 17, And I saw an angel standing on the, in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come, gather yourselves together. Now we got another supper. Unto the supper of the great God. Hmm. Now that's interesting. Because as the saints go back to heaven to enjoy the feast of the Lamb, those who were not ready at the coming of Christ fall dead on the earth. And they become the supper for the eagles, which in reality is translated the vultures. So this is the feast of the vultures, the feast of the birds. What are they doing? They're picking at the corpses. Now stop and think about that. Because these guys are going to lay on the ground for a thousand years. Right? 
At the end of the thousand years, they're going to be resurrected. Can you imagine them coming up after the birds have been done with them? You know, coming up with one eye or one ear missing or something. I don't want to get too gross. But you can imagine that they're going to come up uh, not in a pleasant state. But here he's calling the Feast of the Birds. And it says, that ye may eat of the flesh of kings and of the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Remember good old King Herod. Well, I'll revise that. Old Herod. You can leave the good part out. But remember Herod Agrippa? It said he, people were bowing down to him because he looked so beautiful in his robes. Then they were praising him as a god. And he was absorbing it. He was enjoying it. And then it says, worms began to crawl out of his nose and his mouth. And he keeled over dead and the worms ate him up. Here we find the birds start eating the flesh. Not only Herod, but anybody else. Herod Agrippa I'm talking about. There are many Herods. Look at 1919 and it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against them that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. Notice the beast in his image and his mark. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now notice, we went from the, from the second coming of Jesus. We took the saints back to heaven for the feast, the marriage feast. But there's the millennium in between. This is what happens at the end of the millennium. When the, when the uh, wicked are raised again, this time they're raised for their condemnation. They try to form an army and take the camp of God, and they can't, and ultimately they're burned. Look at, it'll elaborate on that in 20 and 21. Look at verse 9, I mean 21, it says, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And thus we come to the end of chapter 19. So you see how this, we started with the harlot in 17, and it just carries right on over into 19. And so in summary, there's rejoicing in heaven at the destruction of Babylon. Verses 7 through 10 speak of the marriage supper of the Lamb and the second coming of Jesus as King of kings, Lords of lords is the theme of verses 11 through 21. And God is getting ready for the last part. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessing. We're thankful for the word of God and how you have shown us the plan of salvation and told us what is yet to come. Help us to be faithful to you. And may our faith be strong. And thank you on this Thanksgiving season 
for all your many blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.